So hello and welcome to another episode of the Sentient Media Podcast, where we're meeting the people who are changing the way we think about and interact with our world and animals. Uh, today, we are meeting Cheryl Leahy, Executive Director of Animal Outlook. So hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so a little bit of uh, background on Cheryl. Um, she joined Animal Outlook in 2006 as general counsel and the lead of the legal advocacy program and became executive director last year in 2020. Um, obviously, since 2006 and presumably before that, there have been a lot of wins, um, but there are a couple of standout moments that uh, I'd like to highlight um, before we get into it. So there was one um, class action lawsuit against the dairy industry for price fixing, which resulted in a $52 million settlement. And then there was an investigation of Tyson Foods that resulted in um, an evidence, evidence driving the first ever charges and convictions for broiler breeding cruelty, uh, which is just incredible. Um, on top of that, she's also developed and taught one of the US's first courses on animals in agriculture um, and the law at UCLA. So uh, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. We are massive fans of you and your work um, here at Sentient Media. And today you're gonna talk to us firstly about a breaking investigation. Um, please fill us in on what you've been working on. Yeah, so hot off the presses, we've just released our latest investigation, which is a broiler industry hatchery investigation. So for those who aren't familiar with the way the chicken industries are structured, the broiler industry is a type of chicken that people eat. So. Um, these are animals that are hatched at a hatchery, then they go for grow out for about six weeks, and then they are sent to slaughter. So this investigation is of the hatchery stage, and it's of a company called Case Farms, which is one of the top 15 U.S. broiler production companies. And the investigation took place in North Carolina, uh, which is a major ag state. And this is the uh, really, I think a really great kind of window into what does it look like day to day for the broiler industry at this hatchery level. I think it's both kind of unfortunately business as usual and particularly cruel. We're making an argument that, you know, we believe this rises to the level of criminal animal cruelty, um, but it's so kind of entrenched in the day to day operations of this facility that, um, you know, it's a really interesting sort of window into these animals really are just treated as objects. They're just sort of seen as widgets to part of a, in part of the system. They, they process about 200,000 animals every day. Um, so, you know, over time, of course, they're, they're kind of responsible for millions of animals over short periods of time. And we see things like animals being mangled on machinery, killed, left suffering until somebody happens to, you know, pick them up and put them into this euthanizing machine, although I don't love the word euthanasia in this context, but basically um, a, a machine called a macerator, which I kind of think of as almost like a blender, like it's like a grinding up machine. And um, in this case for what are considered cull birds, birds that are either deformed or they're injured or they're too sick, you know, they're essentially not commercially viable animals. They are, in this case, either put into a gassing machine first, where they're gassed with what we believe to be carbon dioxide, or they're just put fully conscious into, just directly into this macerator. So we've got, you know, basically fully conscious birds being dumped alive, birds going to these gassing, gassing machines, or if they're injured, maimed, 
you know, kind of mutilated, just being kind of left out um, to suffer until someone happens to notice and, and pick them up. Um, we've also got birds being dragged across trays in the sorting or the kind of, um, there's a processing line where they, they get sorted out of the, of the trays and then they go into these, um, these sort of conveyor belt systems and that ends up you know, damaging, injuring, killing a number of animals. So this is pretty much, I think, you know, a pretty good, cruel yet standard example of how the broiler industry works. And I think what we're really asking for is this company to be held accountable for the, you know, the millions of animals that it's responsible for, for the um, So I hope that people will check this out on animaloutlook.org. You can watch the video there. So, and you're saying that this is illegal, like this is illegal behavior. This isn't accepted even on their own, you know, regardless of sentience or, you know, like, a, you know, a vegan's, an ethical vegan's feeling about the animals. This is something that's actually illegal on their own terms. Yeah, I think be, being, you know, rising to the level of um, violating the duty of care, right? This is, there's a certain amount of neglect and a certain amount of active cruelty. We do have throwing and rough handling, and that kind of goes into the more traditional buckets of, of animal cruelty. But under North Carolina law, you know, you, you have a duty of care to these animals, just any state's law, you have a duty of care. And if, you know, the focus is on just getting as many through the system as, as fast as possible, you know, that's not enough. That's not, you know, rising to the level of basic care. Um, and, it, and it crosses the line into criminal animal cruelty is the argument they're making. So, You've been at Animal Outlook for about 15 years. Uh, so I was wondering if you could introduce us a little bit to your mission there um, and what your role is exactly or has been. Yeah, so we are a farmed animal advocacy organization. We are, our mission is to challenge the status quo of animal agribusiness and then we break it down into the different ways that we're doing that. So we have four programs. Um, our undercover investigations, which I just talked about, this is something we've done dozens of investigations over the years of everything from, you know, say the hatchery level all the way to the slaughterhouse, um, large and small, kind of all over the place in terms of the animal, kind of really getting a picture, getting sort of a library of material around what is happening on factory farms and slaughterhouses, what animal agriculture looks like. And um, that I think heavily impacts the ability for us to do the other types of work that we do and for the movement to do other types of work. Um, I really see investigations as kind of the engine that's driving a lot of the animal advocacy that, that we're able to do. And I really stand by that. I think that's why I'm still here after all of this. <laughs> From day one, when I, when I walked into the door, you know, it really became clear to me how powerful this sort of raw material is and how much potential it has to leverage change. Um, the other three programs, so the second one is legal advocacy. So that is mostly for us impact litigation. We do a fair amount of lawsuits around standard systemic cruelty, addressing the worst cruelty to the largest numbers of animals. Sometimes this is as a result of an investigation. Sometimes it's directly related to the animal cruelty. Sometimes it's seeking enforcement of animal cruelty laws, which is what we're doing, for example, in the, in the case farms investigation. Um, sometimes it is using laws that were never originally intended to help animals, but where the harm to the human can be almost a stand-in 
for the harm to the animals. And we can kind of apply concepts that you know, were not originally intended for animal cruelty or other similar harms, but we can apply them to the, some of the systemic harms of animal agribusiness. Um, the third area of our programming is on what I would call sort of supply side work. So this is corporate engagement. You know, we have a long history of working with, well, very early on it was restaurants and then it moved into large food companies. So uh, our most recent, um, our most recent victory was around Starbucks, getting Starbucks to offer a nationwide vegan option, a vegan meal. Of course, they have all their, their plant milks and everything. And there's been a lot of positive evolution in that direction. Um, so the idea there is to get these companies to replace their animal product items with vegan items. And sometimes we also work to get them to end some of the worst standard practices from an animal welfare point of view. Um, we're also on the supply side doing work on the farming side of things. So trying to transition farms from animal farms to plant farms. And that's something that we're really growing. We just posted a position announcement to hire a director of farm transformations. And that, you know, that idea of, okay, well, let's go to where the people are actually sort of controlling the largest numbers of animals or have the potential to make such an impact if they were to change their their practices. Um, I think that can be very high impact work. And then the fourth item is what we call outreach. Um, you know, it's, it's basically vegan education, sort of moving veganism into the mainstream and not just vegan eating, but vegan values, people having kind of raising cultural literacy around why should people think about these issues? What do people need to know about these issues? And then also how, how practically can we help people along to move these concepts and these norms and behaviors into the mainstream. Nice. Um, incredible work. And you've just exactly explained why we're such fans of everything that you do. These the intersections and the, the thoughtfulness of that strategy is really powerful. Um, I'm curious about your personal experience, like your personal journey into advocacy. Like, how did that start? Well, I've always, I've always been an animal person. I'm one of, I was one of those kids, you know, <laughs> who just really loved animals and had a natural connection to them. And I honestly, I think many of us are, I think a lot of people, um, you know, it's, it's sort of going along with this theme of animals in society. There's sort of a natural element of human psychology that's very connected to animals. Um, I really didn't have an opportunity to kind of apply that to my work or thinking about what I wanted to do until college where I did environmental studies. And it was clear to me that you could have the, the intersection between environmental studies and animal protection, you know, clearly around factory farming or industrial animal ag work. Um, it, it really struck me that you have an independent compelling argument against factory farming from, you know, sort of almost parallel tracks, right? The environmental protection argument against factory farming is extremely strong. You don't have to touch any sort of animal rights, animal protection, any of that in order to kind of get yourself there. And then likewise, the argument for animal protection on the animal protection side or the animal rights side against basically animal ag wholesale um, is incredibly strong as well. And I thought that, that was there was something so compelling about that. I thought there was so much potential um, for that. And then of course, later I learned about the additional arguments, which I think you could make the same point about human health, right? Being able to, to argue against 
animal ag um, from the point of view of human health. And then really to round it out, the human rights and sort of worker treatment and, you know, the implications for things like water scarcity and which communities and which, you know, populations are going to be subject to some of the worst pollution and the worst, you know, other kinds of issues. So really, I, I, I don't think, and I, I've said this in my classes before, um, and I ask people to sort of challenge what I'm saying, but nobody's taken me up on the offer to challenge this. But what I say is I, I really think factory farming is the biggest social justice issue facing humankind, right? It's just something that touches everything. And there's really no way for us to kind of move forward with all of our values as a society uh, without addressing this and reversing course on this. We really took a wrong turn somewhere, you know, and built this system um, that we just can't sustain and we shouldn't, we shouldn't want to sustain it. So I went to law school kind of with that kind of thinking in mind, um, thinking that law is uniquely capable of kind of crystallizing moral progress in, you know, in our society. And I, I'm not sure, I think I still believe that. Um, <laughs> I think that there's still potential for the law to really move things forward. Um, but I do think, you know, there's sort of a double-edged sword for me to, to look at the way that people really do care about animals. I mean, you, you look at things like survey data, people really do care about animals. Um, and then the law seems to be kind of hanging back in a lot of ways. But in a lot of ways, the law is making progress and really, you know, crystallizing and capturing and sort of cementing that progress for animals. So I think it's a push and pull. I think it plays a really important role. You know, I'm always so impressed by um, those individuals who take it upon themselves to be like, right, we are optimistic. We believe that the law can change and that uh, that's the that's the way to find you know, that's the way to changing the way that things are operating right now. Um, whether it's for human rights or animal rights or you know, as you say, these things, the environment, humans, you know, non-human animals, it's all completely connected. Um, I'm curious, like how you like, could you give us the broad strokes on animal law when it comes particularly to farmed animals? Like, do they have rights? You know, what are they entitled to? You mentioned at the beginning. Um, you know, of the call about this investigation and how animals do have a right to, uh, you know, a duty of care. And obviously, you know, it changes state on state uh, in the US. Um, but I'm curious about like, you know, is there any kind of basic uh, thing that all animal farmed animals have rights to that, uh, that yeah, that exists? Yeah, it's a really interesting way that you're, you're presenting that question. The, the question of rights is, is something that I think you know, I mean, a lot of ink has been spilled on this in the, in the legal side of things, but I think most people would think of rights in the most basic sense as sort of an acknowledgement of, you know, the existence of interest, right? Somebody is there and the, and the law is seeing that somebody, right? And so interesting because there's, there's so many non-human examples of things that in, in that definition of rights have rights in our, in our U.S. system, at least. Um, on the other hand, animals are, are, Farm animals in particular, in practice, tend to be fairly ignored <laughs> by our laws. So I'll lay this out for you a little bit. So, you know, speaking about U.S. law only, the, on the at the federal level, there there is nothing that applies to the way the animal is treated from the time they are born or hatched until the time they are sent off to slaughter. So no federal law has applicability there. There are 
federal laws that are relevant in, in some way to um, farm animals. And by that, I'm specifically talking about animals used for these commercial purposes, right? The meat, milk, and egg industries. Um, the two laws are the 28-hour law, is number one, which is a uh, transport law. So that says if you are transporting livestock, so it does not apply to birds, so we're still we're talking numerically about a relatively small number of animals, for more than 28 continuous hours in a vehicle by common carrier, you have to give them food, water, and rest for five hours. Now, the history of this law is really interesting. Uh, it, was, it was last amended, I believe, in something like 1906. Um, it was heavily enforced in the early half, especially 1920s, 1930s of the 20th century. Um, and if you look at some of the legislative history of the law, you see a lot of real, you know, putting a real flag in the ground for animals, um, including farmed animals. And that sort of tracks somewhat with the history of the animal protection movement, if you go back that far, that there really wasn't this special treatment for dogs and cats where everybody else was sort of left aside. This was part of these animals were in the middle of cities. You know, we've got, we had, um, you know, the, the Chicago stockyards and other places like that, where you had animals coming right into downtown and people, you know, people actually saw um, what the reality was. I think that has changed dramatically. And um, with the 28 hour law in particular, I think this story kind of tracks some of this, the social evolution and, and the dynamics that have changed around this. But after World War II, we had the, the sort of scientific advancement that allowed for factory farming to be the norm. And just to be clear for anyone who isn't aware of this, like when I say factory farming and when I say animal agriculture, that's the same thing, right? I mean, this is how it's done. So that, that happened after World War II because there was the ability for you know, chemistry advancements to allow tens of thousands of animals to be in one place and not have them all die, right? And then, of course, at the same time, you have demographic shifts into more suburbs and cities and fewer farmers. So at that time, you have the USDA interpreting the 28-hour law basically out of existence by saying that it did not believe that a vehicle included a truck. Well, trucks had not been invented in 1906 when the... <laughs> when the law was last um, amended. And, and um, most livestock were transported at that time on trains. And now it's almost, you know, it's a tiny percentage that's transported on trains. So for a number of decades, there really was no enforcement of the 28-hour law. And then in the early 2000s, um, we, along with a couple of other animal protection organizations, Humane Society of the United States and a couple others, uh, petitioned. We did an investigation of, of transport to show just how bad it is. It, it really is quite you know, shockingly bad, worse than, than the 28 hours you would even imagine. Um, and then we argued that, you know, the USDA really can't do that. Like it, it's, it's what's called arbitrary, capricious, and contrary to law. You're allowed to, to go against agency act. They're, they're exceeding their authority. Um, and they said, yeah, okay, a truck is a vehicle. About a year later, they came back and said, yeah, it's a truck is a vehicle. <laughs> and so, um, so they gave that, that uh, enforcement, you know, we're going to enforce it a little differently. We're going to give it over to the DOJ. And then, you know, here and there, it does seem like they, they are enforcing it a little bit. But it really is an area that I think almost, this is a law that almost just sort of lives stuck in history. Like it really has not can't come back and it, it should never have gone away in the first place. But you know, it's an interesting area. There's potential there, but I think more than anything, it's sort of historical 
you know, parable a little bit about, you know, our, our um, lost way <laughs> when all mm. this became the norm. Um, the other uh, federal law that applies to farmed animals is the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. So that is, uh, again, only applies to livestock. That one is much more robust and it does get enforced. Um, it doesn't get enforced nearly as much as I think people would like to think or believe. And in fact, when it does get enforced for you know, particularly severe issues, we may never learn about it. There's a really interesting history about the access to information and all of this, but there are, there are enforcement mechanisms in place. The Food Safety and Inspection Service is supposed to be there watching while they are slaughtering for human consumption and they are able to enforce it. Now there's no way for private parties like you or I to go and get the enforcement we can ask um, and sometimes we get somewhere with that and sometimes we don't. But the fact that it does exist and there are regulations, I think is strong. Now, what that leaves us with though, for most animals and for most of the life cycle is the state level animal cruelty laws. So every state has an animal cruelty law. In most states, they're exclusively criminal laws, which means that in most states, you are not allowed, again, as a private party to enforce those laws. You have to basically persuade the law enforcement, the relevant law enforcement, which you know could be a humane officer, could be sheriff's department, then ultimately it's gonna be like your, your district attorney, the, the prosecutor has to um, make a decision to go ahead and, and prosecute the case. So um, that becomes a real area of, of difficulty. A lot of the time, it really doesn't matter. You know, I would say that you could go back and look at all the investigations that we've done, that other groups have done, and try to just blindly you know, just list out how terrible is the footage, right? How strong is the evidence of cruelty? I would bet money that if you then compare that to which ones got cruelty enforcement, there would be no correlation there. You know, it's not, that's not the factor that's really driving it. I mean, we never bring a case to, you know, ask for prosecution when we don't think it's really, really strong argument that they should be prosecuted. Um, but they really do have discretion it's very broad discretion. The other things about the animal cruelty law, I mean, on one hand, the animal cruelty law, you know, it is really special and unique, A, because it's the only things that are, that apply, right, uh, specifically to how animals are treated, but B, because it really does, as we were talking about, acknowledge the existence of interest for these animals. And they says the law will see these animals, right? There are, there's no other laws that are like, well, you know, you, you hurt an animal or you killed an animal and therefore that is a problem, right? This is, this is an acknowledgement of, of rights in a basic sense, right? I mean, obviously there's debate over again what you would, you would count as rights, but there is something qualitatively different about this kind of law than any other kind of law out there. So I think it's, it's a mistake to think that we shouldn't use them or that there isn't potential for them to be used. But one big barrier is, um, the, aside from the lack of private right of action is the fact that in most states there are exemptions for common or normal or um, normally accepted agricultural practices, that kind of thing. So basically what they're saying is you could do something that would could be criminal and it could be a felony to if you did it to a dog or a cat. But if you do it to a farmed animal, what all that the potential defendant has to do is say, oh, well, this is 
common in my industry. It doesn't have to say it's not cruel. They don't have to say there's something I could be doing differently, right? They just have to say, this is something that the industry accepts. So that's sort of a wholesale delegation to the industry in a lot of ways. Now, I would argue that there's a lot of potential there if we could get into court and we could really make arguments about how, you know, you have to think about the reason for an exemption like that, right? It's, you can't just create a complete black box where the court never gets to inquire into whether something's cruel. You have to, to think that, you know, using the principles of criminal law, using the principles of sort of general justice, right? You can't just categorically give away the ability for a court to examine whether something rises to the level of criminal behavior. So I think if we were able to spend more time, um, you know, in court on these issues, and oftentimes we get stopped before we ever even get to court, I think we would really be able to, to provide more of a deterrent to the industry for some of the, the worst standard practices that are out there. For example, 94% of the dairy industry is disbutting or dehorning calves. That is one of the most horrible things you can possibly witness, right? They're just, these animals are writhing and kicking and they're tying their faces to the side of things. There's one investigation, I think an MFA investigation where the workers got his fingers in the eyes of the calf because that's stopping him from moving his, his head. Well, that's done by everybody, you know, the, <laughs> but there's no reason for them to be doing it. They could just be using genetically pulled cattle, like cattle that doesn't grow horns. Um, same goes with the castration in the pork like you you can watch these animals like literally we've had an investigation where these they're manually castrated they're like being ripped out of their bodies and then the um the worker will put duct tape around the the wound and then there's like you know body parts coming out as like intestines and they're pushing them in with their thumbs of course this, the piglets are like screaming they're you're watching this thinking what is going on and you know you don't have to scratch very far below the surface to find out that there's no reason the industry is doing this. They're all doing it, and there's a separate way to do it that's just using an injection, which has been FDA approved since 2013. No one does it. I think those are the kind of things that could really be major vehicles for change if we can just kind of apply the criminal law to advance the criminal law forward. Um, in those areas. And there's there's one example that really gives me optimism here, which is actually that Tyson case you mentioned at the outset of our conversation. One of the charges within that case was against a common practice and it resulted in a conviction. And that's the first time that that has ever, um, to, to our knowledge, that that has ever happened where a criminal, you know, there's criminal enforcement against a standard practice and it's successful criminal enforcement. So I think that's a real kind of watershed moment. We're kind of, we've made progress around those issues. Now that was an unusual standard practice. Um, it was a broiler breeder operation where um, they were using plastic rods to push through the nostrils of the male birds, male parent birds. So I talked about breeders at the hatchery level, but those eggs are coming from uh, parent flocks who in the industry are trying to make um, they're trying to keep them alive longer because it's more profitable to keep them alive longer. But of course, the you know their offspring are going to be killed at six weeks old. So the fact that they're genetically manipulated to grow, you know, very obese, very fast in a six-week period, 
you know, and some of them, yes, they're getting heart attacks, they're getting leg deformities, they're, you know, getting their whole bodies burned by ammonia because they're sipping in manure. That doesn't cause such a profit problem for the grow out facility, but it causes a profit problem if that's happening at the breeder level. So they're keeping these birds just perpetually hungry, starving. So they put these, by the way they do it, is they put these rods in their nose so that they can't access the feed for the female birds, which is higher quality feed because they need it to, to um, produce eggs. So they're keeping these birds underweight um, and not satisfied. So it's just sort of cruelty layered upon cruelty. And in that case, uh, we were able to go to Tyson and say, look at our investigation. This is absolutely, <laughs> you know, absolutely horrible. And um, Tyson actually stopped doing it. And so did at the end, by the end of the campaign, 17 of the top 20 broiler companies said either we're stopping and not like phasing it out for 10 years, but just stopping um, or we weren't doing it in the first place. So I think that was an unusual situation because it maybe was less entrenched in the industry. Um, and there was also, we also had this very sort of lucky situation with the prosecutor is willing to take that argument and move forward. Now I will say that's progress, but there is one whole other area where, where we really have not made any meaningful advancements and we really need to do it in which, which is getting corporate charges, really getting enforceability and accountability um, around, you know, I don't think that's because the law doesn't allow for it. I think it's because we just, this is the same situation with like sort of prosecution, not willing to do that. And there's a lot of scapegoating that goes on in the industry, but I do think there's a lot of potential um, and a lot of good good advancements behind us in the use of the criminal animal cruelty law. Wow, that's, um, yeah, that's a lot to take in and digest. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible work that you've been doing and it's awesome to hear a, a small bit of optimism <laughs> in amongst all of these, like you say, cruelty laid upon cruelty. Um, I, I wonder like if proving sentience is part of this journey to actually um, you know getting corporations or at least getting consumers to you know to fight against corporations um, if we can prove that you know unequivocally that you know chickens and pigs and um, you know all of these um, animals have you know scientifically been proven to be sentient like I'm thinking of um, you know the law in the UK that's come in recently where or that's coming in um, where lobsters have been proven to be sentient and you can't boil them alive anymore. Um, you know, it, like that's that's a great step. Uh, you know, are there any other laws that you can see that we're kind of on the cusp of right now? Or do you see this role of proving sentience as part of this journey to, to getting laws passed? It's a really interesting question. I think the, to me, just like the cruelty is not the factor, like level of cruelty is not the factor that determines whether we're going to get some sort of accountability, whether it be criminal or civil. Um, I don't think sentience alone as a concept is, is actually going to advance us. I mean, what I've seen, I'll answer your question kind of two ways. One is sort of what I've seen in terms of the uh, industry reacting to the attempts to get enforcement or, you know, not just, I didn't really talk about litigation, but litigation is, is another avenue that we you know, spend a lot of time on. And some of that is to do basically workarounds to the fact that there's no private right of action in the criminal law. So we're trying to find creative ways to uh, basically do criminal cruelty prosecution, but through the civil system. 
and then there are some litigation that we're doing. Can I just, can we, can you just explain what that means exactly? Because I'm not a hundred percent. Yeah. So for example, um, the, you know, okay. So you can take your whole case to a prosecutor and they can say, no, thank you. (laughs) Like, this is not for me. Um, I mean, you know, just pause for a second and say the fact that we have that system is a real problem. It's really at the heart of, I think, why these these industries are allowed to operate with carte blanche and to do it in a way that gives them confidence that they're kind of in the driver's seat about this. I think, you know, I'll give you an example. So we did an investigation of a broiler facility. We're talking about broilers a lot today, I guess, um, in about 10 years ago. And um, one thing that we found there was the the practice of dumping birds alive. So they basically would take, again, what they're considered to be unprofitable, whether they're injured, whether they're sick. um, And they, instead of killing them, there's a whole process of industry that they're supposed to use to kill them. uh, They put them in this, this pit outside that has like a little flap on top and then they would just let them, you know, be buried alive. So among a number of other things, and this is why we always have categories and categories of cruelty, but that particular thing really got to people. It really bothered people and you know, myself included, right? I mean, I had never seen that before. Um, and we did our usual thing where we, you know, we really try to push prosecution um, because it was you know, particularly horrible. And uh, we actually got hundreds of thousands of petition signatures for people saying, you know, you need to tell this is Pilgrim's Pride, another huge company that this farm is for. Um, you know, you need to, to get them to stop. Like they, you know, you need to go after them for this. And um, the prosecutor was completely unmoved by that because, of course, that prosecutor's job is to is to serve, you know, their own constituency of this small rural jurisdiction. And that they may, in some cases, these I don't know this one particularly, but in some cases, they're elected, right? So this idea that they're the gatekeepers for issues that have global implications. I mean, we're talking about massive companies that, you know, there's billions of people, even many more billions of animals that are at issue here. And you're talking about some person thinking about their little corner of the world where maybe this particular company is a major employer. And they're just like, I don't need to listen to this, you know, and they don't, that's just how our system works. So I think that, you know, uh, that's a backdrop. We really need to think about the fact that that's happening as we're thinking about what is the factor that will advance us in law, right? Because um, there's nothing, if you look at the laws themselves, there's nothing that would not, that does not acknowledge the sentience, right? I mean, you look at the way that animal cruelty laws are written and you look at even some of the opinions, which are often very old, um, you know, that lay out the, there's real concern for animals in there. There, there is already acknowledging that. I mean, you know, like it doesn't exclude birds, you know, it doesn't even exclude fish. We talk about fish as a whole separate topic, right? Although to my knowledge, a fish uh, cruelty case has never been the basis of a cruelty charge. But I think the, the point is, you know, the industry really does get to be in control. So what I've seen over time is the industry has gotten very good at PR they used to do things that would be like, oh, this is not what happened. You know, this is probably staged. These people are just crazy vegan activists, right? They used to do all that. Um, and now they have almost a just, you know, almost verbatim script that they use when these investigations come out that says they are horrified, shocked, and saddened by the cruelty 
They have a zero tolerance policy for animal cruelty. Sometimes it says they've fired a worker or workers. Sometimes it says they've retrained them. Um, but basically it's like, we would never do anything, you know, knowingly that would violate our whatever standards. Those standards themselves are a way to be a shield against any kind of legal accountability. They have very little in them. Um, they're very much, you know, meant to look like they're, you know, comprehensive, but in reality, they're, they're basically just, they're toothless. There's nothing in there that even sometimes doesn't even apply to certain um, phases in the process. So um, could they put a word like sentience into, a, you know, let's say the dairy standards or the you know, chicken industry standards? Yeah. Would it actually advance things from a legal perspective? Unlikely, in my opinion. I think more likely to um, kind of shake things up would be laws that actually get us into court for animals. So this would be, there, there's a type of law out there right now called CAPS, Courtroom Animal Advocacy Programs. Currently the most active one of those, there's only a handful, but the most active one of those is out of Connecticut right now. Um, and that allows people to go in and assist the prosecution, um, you know, and kind of sort of be a stand-in for the animals. Now it does not apply to farmed animals as it currently stands, but I think a concept like that could be really helpful to advance law. Um, for farm animals, if we could get either get in directly and say, you know, we are we are prosecuted on behalf of the animals, or we are civilly enforcing on behalf of the animals, um, or it could be uh, something that you know allows there to be sort of the, the regular process, but then somebody is representing the interests of the animals, which we do for children, for example, we have guardians ad litem. Um, you know, we could do something like that. Now, in terms of what is the role of civil law um, versus criminal law? So, you know, the examples I'll give about, okay, well, now we can't get anywhere because of, for example, what happened with the prosecutor with the, you know, the um, bearing alive. We, there's a number of examples like that. So there are cases where you're allowed to um, use a completely separate type of law to uh, argue sort of indirectly for cruelty. So for example, in California, we had an investigation of a hatchery, the prosecutor did not want to prosecute. And um, we used a unfair business practices, like an unfair competition argument, basically saying you can't profit on ongoing animal cruelty. And we argued that we were injured, you had to get into source, a court with an injury basis you know, standing um, because we put the resources into the investigation. And that case, you know, ultimately was successful. It resulted in a, in a settlement. That was the first time that law was used to um, enforce animal cruelty laws, basically, indirectly for uh, farm animals. So there's a number of examples like that. There are also laws that allow a, a, a second sort of hearing, like the sort of like sort of pseudo-private prosecution laws. So there's a case we have right now in Pennsylvania. Um, about a dairy industry investigation that we did where the prosecutor did not want to prosecute the case. We used old private prosecution law to say, uh, you are wrong on your interpretation of the, of the law and the evidence. And we want the, you know, the judge to basically override the DA's decision not to prosecute the case. So we actually have oral arguments on that, I think October 13th um, on an appeal, which is really exciting because we usually don't actually get into a literal courtroom on these issues. So um, 
you know, I think those kinds of things, that would be a great example. That was a case where we had, you know, the, the hot iron dehorning. That'd be a great example of an opportunity to do that. So I think the answer is there are ways to advance the law. I don't think they have to be as sort of substantively ambitious as, you know, establishing sentence, establishing rights. I think it's in there. Um, there are others I'm sure that would really disagree with me. Um, but I think we just need a chance to get in front of people. It would be nice to have, for example, courts that had expertise in, in animal cruelty prosecution, um, in farm animal cruelty prosecution in particular, where we could be much more tailored in remedies and, you know, say, this is how we want to fix it. We want to be able to go back and look and see what's going on. For example, you know, we don't want to be scapegoating, you know, individual workers and letting everybody else get off the hook. Not that individual workers, you know, don't do really horrible things sometimes, but it's all part of a system, right? It's all part of a kind of bigger system that continues on with very little, um, very little damage after these investigations. So we're trying, that's I think where the law has potential. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because the, you know, the criminal in, you know, probably 100% of your cases uh, and in investigations is really, you know, the few corporate entities who control yeah. the money and gain the most from continuing to exploit animals uh, and humans and the workers, you know, in this way. So, yes, you know, if animal, you know, animal rights aren't or farmed animal rights aren't even acknowledged, you know, in the law, um, you know, how, how would you go about unraveling, you know, such powerful entities as, I mean, you've done it, you know, with Tyson, um, but, you know, how, how do we go about unraveling these powerful entities um, where the law is set to protect, you know, the profit, you know, we have ag-gag laws being passed rather yeah. than, you know, rights for, for any kind of um, farmed animal, or even, like I say, even workers don't, um, don't seem to have the rights either. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? How do you actually go after the sort of main corporate actors? So I'm sure you saw this, this article that just came out, I think, early September, um, about how, you know, the top 20 uh, uh, farms are, are polluting more greenhouse gases than multiple countries in Europe. I think in the Guardian, see that in the same way for the small number of actors that are responsible for, you know, the, the massive amounts of animal cruelty. So I think when you're looking at how you address these things, you know, you have to look at how do you target these, these major corporations that have the, the ability to make a huge change. I mean, you know, for example, when we did that, that same Pennsylvania investigation, the dairy investigation, that was a Nestle supplier. So we went to Nestle and said, you know, we really should, should have more vegan options. We also asked them to stop disbudding in their supply chain. They would not do that, but they did add more vegan options. And as the number one food company in the, in the world, you know, that's a huge thing. Like they have the, the power and the control over such a huge thing. So even a, you know, a, a slight shift like that has massive implications. I think from a legal point of view, you're talking about using a number of strategies. So you've got, um, you know, the enforcement of the animal cruelty laws, which we talked about, You've got the civil litigation. Now, now we've talked a little bit about using the civil routes to go after directly after animal cruelty, but I think there's a whole world and it's almost sort of infinitely possible um, in terms of the list of ways you could do this of laws that, as I said, are not originally intended to help animals, but could be addressed, um, could be applied to address these systemic cruelty issues. So 
For example, um, you mentioned the antitrust case, the dairy antitrust case. What was happening in that case was 70% of the dairy industry, so the dairy industry is in the US at least is run by co-ops. So they, it sounds very quaint, but these are turns out to be huge entities with a lot of power. Um, they're also heavily supported by government entities. So what they were doing was um, they were paying farmers to kill their young productive cows, often their entire herd, often smaller farmers. And they were calling it very euphemistically this dairy herd retirement program. Um, you know, I, I will say like for anybody who's kind of looking for targets, uh, ways to go after the industry, when you see like really Orwellian language like that, where you're like, the, the best thing they can do is just completely say the opposite of what they mean, <laughs> that there's usually something there. There's usually something you can do about that. Um, but it is a cow killing program and they killed over 500,000 um, young cows to take them out of the supply chain to inflate the prices. And their own data that they were publishing on the website was showing that they made over nine and a half billion dollars doing this, at least as of the time that we developed the case idea on this. And then we kind of handed it off to a big class action firm. They spent all this time litigating and pulling all this, this economic data around. But what the, the co-ops thought was that they were just protected under this, this law from the 1930s that says you don't have to be subject to antitrust rules if you're a co-op. Well, that was meant for these tiny, you know, if you're like a regional like sugar grower and you want to get together with your other regional sugar growers so that you can fight the, you know, the Caribbean sugar like rum companies coming in, right? This is completely turned on its head, right? It was never meant to reduce supply. It was never meant for these big, huge guys. So that case was a really good example of here's somebody, you know, here's an industry really playing a game. They're really playing the rules and nobody's taking them to task for it. And here's an example of where they can do that. You know, another area might be um, the use of the uh, False Claims Act, which basically says when you are, um, when you are uh, fraudulently acting um, in, the, in the context of a contract that you have, a sales contract that you have with the federal government, or actually all, of course all state governments are a state False Claims Act, you can, um, stand in for, as a private citizen, you can stand in for the interests of the government and get that money back. So we were able to do that successfully in an interesting way after a lamb slaughter investigation that we did. Uh, and that, you know, those, those cases almost never take place. And I think there's a lot of, of potential there. So I think when it comes to going after systemic cruelty, I mean, you also can look at things like you know, the industry really relies on really exploiting workers. There's so many things, you know, that these workers don't have protection. There's a very interesting and very racist history of why there are exemptions for um, farm workers in a lot of these worker protection statutes. And, you know, trying to kind of undo that, I think would be a big thing. The other big area I think here is to try to sort of dismantle the subsidy structure. We are in a situation, and I, th I don't think people understand this necessarily, but at least in the US, um, there's a, a strong history of the federal government really pushing animal agriculture kind of over other things. And I'm including feed crops. There's a reason that we, that we farm corn, wheat, and soy over you know, a number of obviously tons of other types of crops. And that's because most of that is going to feed animals. And that also is very heavily connected in with why do we have so much corn syrup and you know Fritos and you know, all these things that 
um, are contributing to other health issues. And it's because of the level of kind of propping up that the federal government is doing. It's a $30 billion subsidy structure that goes to animal ag. And that's completely, you know, you look at, there's actually charts out there, you can look at it. Um, you know, there, it's just nothing in, in, you know, comparison to what they're doing with like fruits and vegetables and really like literally nothing. Um, so, you know, there's, there's ways maybe to really start dismantling that that could have massive implications. And that also includes repurposing some of that money for, you know, encouraging more sustainable and um, animal free systems. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I'm curious, like, obviously, most of your, if not all of your work is about, you know, exposing the reality of what's happening, uh, you know, behind closed doors and making that information public, you know, to, you know, internet users, YouTube, whatever, but also putting it in front of the corporations. And yeah, like you say, they've changed their narrative from, oh, they're just crazy vegans to, oh, we didn't know, honest. Um, but do you, do you believe um, the, the saying, uh, if, slaughterhouses had glass walls, the world would be vegan? Um, no. <laughs> and here's why. There is research on this. And it says basically that information alone is not enough to push that sort of transformative process in people. It's important. You have to have information. And I think, you know, we could spend all day talking about why we don't have access to that information. I think investigations really provide that kind of counterpoint, but um, it can actually backfire to give just information. And that's because we have a powerful sort of cognitive dissonance mechanism, right? In order to resolve cognitive dissonance, either you change or you change your value, right? Like you can change the value opinion if it's easier than changing your behavior. So people will justify you know, what, the, what they're doing and what they're a part of because they don't want that discomfort. And I think you can look at things like people who work in these, these places, people who live in these cultures, and, you know, there's, there's a certain kind of, you know, detachment and blindness. Of course, you have to, you have to be doing that. It makes total sense. You know, even something like 4-H where, um, you know, their, their job is essentially to acculturate children into this sort of hierarchical thinking against animals and kind of violent and authoritarian way of thinking. Um, but I think what the research says you need in addition to information, in addition to being able to see what's going on, is a sense of self-efficacy. You need people to feel like they understand the problem um, and they understand the solution and they believe that they are able to affect that solution. So if people feel really helpless um, or they think that the, that the behavior change that they would have to do in order to resolve the problem would be too hard, the barrier is too high, they won't feel, they'll kind of feel deflated. They won't feel that sense of confidence. And if they, if they don't feel that, then they go back to kind of resolving the cognitive dissonance in a different way. And another real important um, component to this, you know, that, that we've really been thinking about more here at Animal Outlook is the concept of community which you know you, you can certainly kind of go it on your own and you can kind of have your own journey into thinking about these things. But in terms of taking a person from really not knowing or thinking about these things all the way through to really internalizing this, this information and making it, you know, in, enhancing your identity. I mean, I really think that that's what it's all about. That's where we're trying to go. Um, 
you, you, it's very hard to get there with, well, you, when you feel alone, when you feel like you're sort of going against everyone around you. So feeling like you're part of a community, and I think the opportunity these days to feel like you're part of an online community, um, you know, is a real opportunity there. But just seeing the things, even if they, you know, cause this whole sort of domino effect of, you know, the industry is going to point fingers and then people are going to, you know, hope that it's not as bad as what they see and, you know, but it bothers them and all that, like that alone is not um, going to get you all the way there. I will say there's, to me, something very weird about fish when it comes to this, um, because I think you could have glass all over fish places and they wouldn't do anything. Um, it's really interesting because, so we did an investigation of a, of a fish salmon um, hatchery in 2019, which we're still, we're still in litigation over, um, but they, you know, it was pretty bad. Like if you just listed out all of the different things that were done, like they were throwing the fish, there was fish eating each other's eyeballs because they were mistaking the pupils for food because they didn't have enough food. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, and then the, of course, the fact that we let fish just like suffocate and die that way. I mean, if we did that to any other animal, you know, so, um, it really felt like we had to go back to the earlier days of animal advocacy to make these arguments like, yes, fish are animals. Yes, they feel pain. The science is there on that, you know, and, you know, the, the cruelty law, it, it exists to cover including, you know, everything, including fish. I think there's something, you know, we just have to do as advocates to move us forward on fish. You know, it's a, it's a pretty new area in terms of exposure. Certainly, you know, there's there's investigations from back in the day of, of open ocean fishing and, you know, people get really upset about, you know, dolphins and turtles and sea lions and stuff becoming part of that. But the actual fish, I think people are less engaged um, and it's really violent and horrible. So I think, you know, we have some more work to do about helping people connect the dots there. But I think for mammals and birds, it's already just viscerally in us you know, as people, most people are not going to, the vast majority of people are not going to look at an investigation, you know, and say, this is fine. You know, they are bothered by it. It is something that, you know, our problem is not values. It's not cultural values. People do care about animals. They care about them in overwhelming numbers. Even when you ask the questions, you know, should animals have rights? Even when you ask questions like, should farm animals be treated like companion animals? You know, people overwhelmingly do care about them. And that is included in things like, you know, Proposition 12 in California, which is not an animal rights law, but it's a major animal protective law. Um, you know, people come out and vote in, in major numbers to support laws like that. So the problem is not our values, it's sort of our behavioral norms. Um, you know, and our systems that are in place, like our, our legal institutions and our political institutions that really allow for a very distorted, you know, reflection of, of those values. Mm, and I think with the, on the, on the fishing, fishing uh, aspect of things, like with the, you know, cows and, and chickens, what people can argue for is like, oh yeah, we want them to be, you know, happier. And obviously we care about welfare and we want our line caught, you know, salmon, whatever. Um, but at the end of the reality of where, the meat and the fish that are actually consuming comes from is obviously, you know, not line court or, you know, cows living in a field where they live solely off, off grass, like where the feed yeah. is grown for these animals, like the feed for the farmed fish is taken from 
you know, out at sea from the from the high oceans, and it's done through trawling. Uh, the, the feed for the cows is from you know the Amazon or other deforested areas of our planet. Um, so yeah, I do I do find like connecting the dots is is a really important aspect of this um, and educating people. But on the on the point of companion animals, um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today was about companion animals and it was about how we feed our companion animals because there's this hidden kind of thing that we don't talk about very often um you know especially in the animal protection space where a lot of people have pets uh you know companion animals and feed them on you know shop-bought meat right it's uh you know especially if they're cats you know you can't bring up a cat on a plant-based diet um like, what work have you done in the um, pet food space? Like, is there anything that you can shed light on? Is it like a different environment to, yeah. you know, how do we get their food? Yeah, well, I'll talk about one of our most recent investigations, and then I'll kind of you can do a zoom out and talk about pet food in general. But I think, you know, so this was our, our first investigation that specifically targeted a place for pet food. Um, but basically this is a, a New Jersey slaughterhouse that slaughters both cows for what they call like high performance dog food and also horses for exotic animal feed. So um, what's really interesting, just sort of an interesting wrinkle just to note that I think most people in the US do not think there is horse slaughter in the US um, and there isn't for human consumption, but because animal feed is such a, a weird area in terms of its regulations, you know, th that it doesn't apply there. So, um, you know, non-human consumption horse slaughter is happening. In the US. So that's kind of interesting. Um, what we did in this case was we got a sample. The first thing we did was we got a sample of the dog food and we tested it and then tested positive for pathogens, salmonella and so that kind of thing. And that caused the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, to um, issue a recall, which ended up being most of the, the products, um, the dog food products or major products. And then we went in there um, you know, with our camera, hidden camera, and documented a spent dairy cow. So these are animals that you know, are no longer profitable within the dairy industry and they're sent to slaughter. Um, in this case, the animal was dragged by a, a chain out of the trailer, and then they use what's called a captive bolt pistol, which is like, the, the best way I can describe this to people is like, it's like from No Country for Old Men, if you've seen that movie, that that's what the, the villain in the movie carries around. <laughs> it's this, it's in, in a big slaughterhouse, it would be attached to like a hydraulic system, but there's also the handheld version which essentially is a gun that shoots out a bolt, but then it captures the end of the bolt so it doesn't actually stay in the, in the animal's head. And you have to be pretty skilled. I mean, there's diagrams and stuff. This is the kind of thing that I spend my time on. There's diagrams and stuff you can look at to see exactly where you have to you know, shoot a cow in the head. It's very difficult to hit, find the right spot. Um, so it's a pretty skilled uh, thing to, to be the person who's called like the knocker, the person who actually um, shoots the, the cow. So in this case, um, they, they end up shooting the cow multiple times, several times, and over the course of many, many minutes. So under the Federal Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, um, you are supposed to knock them once, and then that's it. It's effective. They're, they're you know, unconscious. They don't wake up. Um, in, there are cases where the Federal Humane Methods of Slaughter Act has been enforced 
against multiple knocks. So a few seconds in between is bad. Like you really shouldn't be doing that. If, you, if worst case scenario, you miss, mess it up the first time, you should be doing another one immediately because it's really bad for them to you know, still be conscious and suffering through it. In this case, it was many, many minutes in between multiple knocks and there was a dragging. Um, and it was also really dirty and disgusting. Um, so we argued that that is a violation of federal and state law. And there's a number of agencies that are involved. So we're still working on that. We're looking into some other, you know, sort of similar places too. But, um, you know, the, the whole reason that this area, like we're getting a lot of bouncing between one agency saying it's not them and, you know, going to another agency. And I think that is indicative of one of the big issues with, with pet food is that the the USDA interprets the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, where it's FSIS, which is the inspection people that would do human consumption, um, to not apply to them. I mean, we argue that at least the humane treatment side of what's in the HMSA is should be and does apply to the pet food slaughter um, or the you know non-human consumption slaughter. But it's FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that has the major enforcement authority here. So there's no like inspectors in the slaughterhouses um, for this kind of slaughter. And, and you know, okay, so now I'll kind of zoom out a little bit and say this. Yes, pet food is a really big source of meat consumption. The statistic I see here is uh, dogs and cats in the US eat as much food as all the people in France and contribute to 25 to 30% of the environmental impact of meat consumption. That's from Science Daily. But I think what's important to understand is we're talking about a lot of this being condemned meat. So this is meat that is coming from animals that are either, so there's a system called 4D. It stands for dead, dying, diseased, or disabled. And so those animals cannot be slaughtered for human consumption, um, although they play fast and loose sometimes with what's considered a downer because they can get them back up and then put them back in the food supply. And there's a whole bunch of litigation around this and laws and fight around this with the pork industry. But um, when it comes to these animals that are arriving at slaughterhouses um, or they go down at a slaughterhouse, those are the animals that are most likely to be already suffering and then treated horribly once they you know, are in that, in that boat. So we saw, for example, at Central Valley Meat, which um, is a spent dairy cow facility uh, slaughterhouse in Northern California. So what we would see is animals either, you know, they're, they're in bad shape on the truck, they might be able to get them up off the truck. They go down in what's called the yards before they are put through like the, the chute to get into the slaughterhouse to be slaughtered for human consumption. And then, you know, there, there's an effort made to, um, you know, they shock them, they use their tail to push them up. There's all sorts of ways that they try to get them up. If they can't get them up, um, they are using the captive bolt pistol. And in that case, we also had multiple knocks over multiple minutes, you know, a long period of time. And then in that case also, which was completely bizarre, uh, after the multiple knocks, you know, over a course of minutes, the workers would sometimes be standing on the nostrils of the cows to make, to make sure that they were suffocating to death, um, you know, which actually we did get enforcement on main slaughter law on, on that case, but not for that, not for any of those kinds of issues. Um, so anyway, once they're dead, uh, they are then injected with a dye. I think it was like blue, a blue dye. There's like a syringe 
and then a little bobcat tractor comes along, drags them off to the, the rendering area, and then that's you know going to go to something like pet food. So it's important, I think, to if, if you're taking away nothing else from this conversation about pet food, to really recognize the relationship between some of the worst treatment of animals um, and the pet food industry. And I don't think that you know, I don't think the pet food industry itself is is propping up the necessarily the um, you know the the animal ag industry, but certainly it's allowing for an incentive structure that does not say you have to treat these animals well, or does not say you know if you know this this animal is just going to be subject to horrible misery and dragged around and you know poked and prodded and their tail broken to try to get them up that you know you should maybe do something different about it like certainly the pet food industry the fact that they can sell that over to rendering i think is you know we really should be examining the incentive structure that's there um but it is you know it is a byproduct of some of the worst treated animals and the worst treated industries you know the egg industry the spent egg laying hens and, and the dairy industry are you also uh, like saying that in the u.s 20 to 30 percent of you know the the animals are dead, diseased, or or dying, right? That essentially, in the in the main kind of meat industry, that's that's like. I don't know if we can say that. I right. think it says they're saying twenty five to thirty percent of environmental impact. So I think the environmental impact is disparate along mammals. I mean, of course, birds have a huge environmental impact too. Um, I think the question, you know. How many animals versus how much poundage are we looking at? I just don't know. I don't know mm -hmm. if we have statistics on anything like that. Um, but I would say, I mean, my strong guess would be that it's heavily um, dairy and eggs industry byproducts that we're looking at in pet food. And I'll just say like, you know, this is not to, of course, I'm an animal lover. I have a dog. I've always had dogs and um you know, there is such a thing as vegan dog food. Like we don't have to make this really complicated. You know, you can just go to the store and get, <laughs> get vegan dog food. Um, so it's, it's not like, you know, we have to sort of sit here and do a lot of hand-wringing around, you know, is this ethically acceptable and what should we do to sort of change all these things? But, you know, it's, it's just sort of, you know, it's a choice that we have, just like it's a choice that we as people have to be vegan, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know where I am on the fence with like cell based meat and, and things like that. And mm -hmm. particularly like as a, you know, more of a whole food leaning um, vegan, I, I don't, I'm not going to eat it or, you know, I'm not going to eat cultivated meats yeah. and things like that. But for the pet food industry to be replaced, you know, for cats, if, if we could get, you know, a meat that is, you know, has the right nutrition levels that can feed, uh, you know, animals that can't live off a plant-based diet like a, a cat or whatever um then uh, then that would be that would be an amazing win i reckon on on our side um i think that this may be i don't know the updated years been years since i've heard this but there was some cell culture meat company that was making mouse cat treats mouse meat i saw something about that recently actually yeah that's right there is yeah so that's kind of fascinating thinking about like you know what applications there might be for things like that yeah. Um, their, their cats vegan diets just you know um fortified with taurine and all that i mean that's a whole nother topic but i think it's just one of those things where it's kind of like yes you can wade into that conversation yes there are these choices so you know it's just something to kind of consider as part of otherwise a very hidden industry i mean the you know the fda also delegates its authority to a private entity for nutrition it's uh this aa 
FCO, I think is the is the acronym of it, but it's a totally private entity. So we don't know what's going on there. You know, FDA is not there with the actual slaughter. USDA is not there. It's such an oddly hidden thing. And I think at least, you know, as advocates, as people who care about animals, as people who care about, you know, the other negative impacts of factory farming, I think we have to look at like, these are the, the worst of the worst that are then being dragged off and liter literally, you know, dragged to a corner, um, you know, and then they, they show up again as, as kibble, you know. Um, I mean, I have so many million questions for you. I could just keep talking to you all day. Um, but I, I think I should probably let you get back to um, back to your to your main to your day job, as it were. Um, but I had like two more things that I'm like burning to ask you, if that's OK. Yeah. OK, um, so one topic, I mean, obviously this week um, we're focusing on animals in society as part of our uh, theme week um, and one topic that we know throughout the last couple of years and particularly I think through COVID when everyone's kind of locked and at home and the you know uptake of, of uh, TikTok and things like that um, is the, the the use of animals in GIFs um, and on social media platforms so you know creating these funny videos and actually some videos you know for selfies you know you, the, the stories of these rare dolphins who you know their the calf has been passed around um, you know, different tourists taking a photo with this little dolphin and the dolphin dies and, you know, all, all of these kind of things in the in the name kind of social media and um, creating influences you get, you know, paid X amount of dollars per view. Um, it's an incredibly difficult thing to track and trace and to find the people who actually created the footage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, just day after day, you see more and more of these stories coming out. I was wondering, if you know of any law or any um, research or work or investigations that are being done in that particular space in terms of figuring out who created, you know, whichever GIF or which influencer is get, you know, et cetera. Like, is there anything that you know of that's going on in that space? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. There, there's a very famous US Supreme Court case about this. Um, and it's not, <laughs> It's not about anything nearly as sort of innocent or clueless as what you're describing, right? I mean, I think you can make the argument that, you know, there this is just sort of what you're describing, just sort of, you know, thoughtlessness kind of getting out of hand, right? And I think that 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 would be a, a much milder version and a much more kind of acceptable um, or or excusable version than what I'm about to tell you, which is about the history of trying to criminalize crush videos. Is this something you're familiar with? Uh, yes, I've never watched one. That's good. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, in a basic sense, these are like these are fetish videos that are meant to um, basically they're they're commercial vehicles, right? I mean, people are trying to make money on these vehicle on these videos, and it's often things like a woman in a high heeled shoe slowly crushing like a rodent or even a larger animal. Um, I want to say I've heard that there's like kittens in some of these videos, but I think most of them are also smaller animals, like, you know, rodent sized animals. I've definitely heard of kittens as well. What? I've definitely heard of kittens. Um, yeah. Too, yeah. It's one of those things that I know I like heard in that context. And then I wanted to just be like, I'm just going to pretend I didn't, <laughs> I didn't hear that. Um, but um so there was a law that was meant to criminalize these videos or knowing, you know, 
distribution or depiction of these videos um, for profit. And there was a First Amendment free speech um, constitutional argument made against them in, in litigation around this, and it went up to the Supreme Court of the United States. Ultimately, the Supreme Court found that it was, you know, it was unconstitutional. It was too broad. It was not clear that, you know, the way that the law would be applied would not apply to constitutionally protected speech. And, you know, that there, it's very different. It, it makes a lot of sense if you kind of look at First Amendment law, although I think it's very interesting if, if anyone is, is sort of so inclined to pull up the opinion and some of the briefing on the case, including an amicus from HSUS to get into kind of the distinction about, is this about a restriction of speech or is it about preventing a practice? And I think a lot of the law around First Amendment is, is that debate essentially. Like, yes, something is speech, but is it more a practice than speech? And this is why we have obscenity laws around things like child pornography and stuff. Like, it's not about the speech, you know, it's about the crime that's taking place. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot of interesting debate about that. But what I think was actually most interesting about that case is that the discussion among the court around what is cruel is basically, we don't know. There could be something in one state that's cruel and in another state, it's not considered cruel. There's no, you know, there's no way to say up front what is, you know, actually considered, you know, something that could be fault under this. So then you could imagine realistically applications of the law that would cover protected speech. So they, you know, give an example, like, I think their example was something like, you know, there's certain kinds of hunting or hunting at all. Like hunting is not allowed in the District of Columbia, but it may be allowed in, you know, Virginia, which is right next door or certain types of practices. So basically what they're saying is, you know, we have this very inconsistent and sort of irrational relationship with animals as a, as a society. And our law kind of reflects that, right? We don't know exactly, you know, what, we, what kind of stance we wanna take about a given practice here or there. And there's, you know, it's all kind of a, a mismatch of different states' laws around different things and different people's opinions around different things. So, you know, this level of confusion that we have really makes trying to regulate, you know, something that's obviously quite bad, you know, that obviously is animal cruelty across, across the board, really kind of a quagmire. You can't totally um, create kind of a black and white law on quicksand, right? We need to become, I think the, the lesson for us to take out of this is we need to become less confused as a society about what we consider to be problematic to animals. So basically, I think the answer to your question is there's really not practically that I can see practically anything to be done um, about this in terms of, you know, legislating about it. But I think certainly it should be part of the conversation in terms of, of creating a clearer ethic that's reflected in the way that actually is a reflection of values, right? I think the law as it currently stands, you know, especially for farm animals is, is terrible in terms of its, you know, of, of its actual application. But I think that's because it's controlled by a few powerful people who want to be able to continue exploiting animals. I don't think we should look at that and see it as a reflection of societal values. At the same time, I think we have work to do making sure that those societal values are reflected in the law. Otherwise, we're, our hands are tied in situations like this. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, <laughs> all of that kind of horribleness aside, um, 
what's the dream investigation for you like what what would the vision be what would the what would you love to do that you just haven't been able to do yet well I think you know for every investigation we need you know we need resources we need sort of skill but we also need a lot of luck right like, like it's not it's funny because you know these places don't want us in there it's not like we can just sort of have our pick of wherever we're going to go um, I think there's there's two areas that to me really make a lot of uh, you know a lot of sense to to continue to focus on and to and to try to build on. One is as I mentioned those few actors that control everything, right? That control the, the lion's share of things. And in order to be in a position where we can maximize our potential impact of an investigation, I think keeping the the sort of through line as direct as possible between the investigation. And one of these big players is is really important to do or has a lot of potential not to say that we don't investigate these smaller places and you know i think small large you know they're all we've seen a lot of issues with every, every level um but i think uh really being able to get into some of those places and saying no you can't walk away and you can't just say oh this is a supplier i didn't know what they were doing um can can put us in a position where we could do a lot with that I also think there's a lot of areas um, in animal agriculture that we don't know anything about. I cannot tell you, I literally woke up in the middle of the night recently, just suddenly occurred to me that I have no idea what happens to the pigs after that are used in breeding in the pork industry after gestation crates and farrowing crates. We've never seen that. We've never seen, are they depopulated? Do they go to slaughter? Are they like, you know, killed in some way individually? Like, I just, I don't know. You know, and there's other things like that that we really have never seen, you know, a breaker facility in the egg industry. You know, that's that's even worse than a regular battery cage facility. We know that from little bits and pieces, but we've never seen an investigation of it. And I think there's there's other things. We've seen one ever investigation of a veal slaughterhouse, for example. Um, there, you know, Animal Equality just did a really interesting investigation where they caught the, the fetuses of um, slaughterhouse, uh, spent dairy cows going to a slaughterhouse and what happens to the fetuses and how they're kind of delivered and killed. And that's horrifying. And we kind of knew that that existed, but I'd never seen it in an investigation before. You know, there's those sorts of things. I think there is a systematic um, kind of hiding that's going on. And we really, in some ways, only scratch the surface. I mean, in some ways, we know exactly what we're going to see when we walk into one of these places. And in some ways we don't, you know, there's always something new, there's always something different. So I think when it comes to investigations, our job first and foremost is to be accurate and complete reporters of what is going on and to give people that window into these places and to really give them the chance to sort of see for themselves what's happening. And then our sort of second responsibility is to be as, you know, as thorough as possible, as complete as our, as our corners of this world that we have not seen. And then, of course, the more we can use that as, as a vehicle to advance cultural change and, you know, create corporate accountability, I think that's that's kind of the sweet spot of where we want to be. And it would be, uh, you know, I'm sure my team would be very angry with me if um, I didn't ask, what do you do from like a self-care perspective? Because the content and the investigations and everything that you, you know, have to witness and 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 think about and talk about and you're waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it you know 
is there anything that you do that uh, helps you be able to kind of manage this kind of onslaught of, of stuff that you have to witness? Yeah, I mean, you know what's interesting? I don't know if this is self-care, but I've gotten to the point with investigation footage where it it doesn't, if, if I feel like I can do something with it, it doesn't like traumatize me. You know, I understand that it traumatizes other people and it really certainly is, it has a huge impact on the investigators. But there's something that to me, there's something so powerful and so frankly positive about the potential from investigations that, you know, that sense of kind of transformative potential that I really feel like when we get something strong, um, I, I feel that sort of like burst of energy <laughs> that we can do something with this. I want to get this in front of people. I want to make sure people understand. I want to do right by the investigator. I want to make sure that investigator is, is you know, really, um, you know, that their efforts and their sort of, you know, all of the of the trauma that they go through really is is um, kind of and, and of course what they're trying to do is be a voice for those animals you know they they have to sit there and stand by while those animals are, are being mistreated so I'll tell you for me um, and I think I've heard this for other people who spend a lot of time with investigation footage or who have actually been into these places most people do not go through this process it is available to anyone who wants to do it but I totally understand why most people don't do it if you sit with investigation footage long enough, if you get past the trauma, past the blood and the violence and the intensity and the kind of flinching, um, you know, your, your, your brain does this sort of interesting thing um, where you get into this like detachment and this kind of, there's a, there's a certain clarity around the fact that what we're doing here is so wrong, it's so off. And I'll tell you like what, what happened with me. That was actually the Central Valley Meat Investigation, the one I was talking about with the blue dye and the, and the um, standing on the nostrils of the, of the cows. I can't tell you how many, probably, I probably spent one day, we're really trying to get it out to the enforcement. So I probably spent 14 hours in one day watching footage, which was mostly slaughter line footage um, of that investigation. And then I went outside and, um, I was driving around and I saw some people playing kickball in the park. And I live in Southern California. It's super sunny. It's like beautiful. There's palm trees and it's, you know, and it just occurred to me like, okay, well, some people spend their days playing kickball in the park. Some people spend their days like blasting the brains out of cows with a captive bolt pistol, right? I mean, the fact that we do that, you know, and again, like you make that face because you should, it's like you're a feeling human being. But at that point, because I'd seen the footage for so long, I, I was, I had this like, this sort of calm detachment from it and thought to myself, like, if anyone could come and observe this, that this is what we do as a species to our fellow species on the planet, they would think we were just the most absolute bizarre. Like we go around teaching our children, you know, and telling each other to be kind to each other, to be respectful of autonomy and rights, you know, to not mistreat people or treat people differently based on the way that they look or, you know, that, that where they come from or any of these things, right? Like we have all these values that we really hold dear. We have a sense of justice. We have a sense of order and accountability and all this stuff, right? And then we have this going on, you know, which is completely a gaping wound in that whole way of looking at things. Like we can't have a society where meat eating is normative and we can continue forward with these institutions and these values that we that we purport to hold. And I remember just thinking like, you know, 
why are we doing this? Like, why do we as humans do this to other animals? Like, it's so wrong, and especially cows. Cows have this very trusting sort of body language. They're very gentle. They're very sweet. In fact, I think that's why they're exploited to the degree that they are. Um, and that, then, you know, it really left me with this question of like, who do we think we are? You know, at first it was like that outrage, like, who do we think we are? Like, why do we think it's okay to go ahead and do that? But really like, who do we think we are in like a bigger sense, right? Like, who do we think we as humans are in terms of our relationships with, you know, this, this world that we're living on, these other animals. And I just, it just sort of kind of all came together for me in that moment of kind of like, you know, seeing all these people in the park and the sunshine and then just all this like over and over again, all this, all this violence and killing, you know, it's like, yeah, we can't, we can't be doing this. Like we can't be continuing to kill animals as much as you hear justification and as much as you hear people avoiding the topic and stuff like the, the reality is that it's violent and it's, you know, really against the way that, um, you know, that we want to build society and that we want to live uh, as people. And I just, yeah, I think, I think that in, in itself is the thing that kind of keeps me attached and going and using these investigations to the best way that we can. I mean, I, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like, and I can see that from the work that you do and the, you know, the unstoppable nature of what you've all been doing at Animal Outlook, um, just making sure that these investigations get into the right you know, places, whether it's the general public or, you know, it, whether it's the corporations or the suppliers, uh, you know, the people who are selling the products, etc. Um, incredible. Thank you so, so, so much for your time today. Um, it's been really insightful. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, and yeah, I hope everybody listening has as well. And I'm sure people are going to want to know how to find you and find the work that you're doing. Like, where where should they head to? Well, thank you, Crystal. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of Sentient and um, I really, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here. I think what you're doing, we're doing is really, really wonderful. Um, we are at animaloutlook.org. You can, you can do what I just described of going through a bunch of investigation footage there <laughs> if you want. Um, you can also sign up for our e-newsletter and keep, and keep apprised of what we're doing there. You can become a monthly donor, which is a really crucial role, role you can play. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and please subscribe to our YouTube, which is where some of our best content is as well. Thank you so, so, so much, Cheryl. Um, have a, well, <laughs> have a good day. Hopefully either watching footage and feeling good about it or uh, maybe go and kick a ball for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.